Hey, welcome back. It's another episode of Business of Film, episode number 54. My name is Jesse Eichmann, and you're listening to a crafttruck.com podcast. Today, we've got with us Randy Manis. Uh, Randy is, uh, I guess, a longtime colleague, uh, known Randy for uh, a number of years. Uh, wonderful guy, just a, a, a gem in the business. He has worked and started his career at Lionsgate, then moved over to Think Film. So he comes from a distribution uh, tradition uh, and uh, is also uh, a lawyer by trade. And so has both the business and sort of producerial sides of his brain working all at the same time, uh, which makes for a really cool conversation. We get into distribution, we talk about Sundance, we talk about uh, film financing and international markets. Uh, we, we get into a lot of stuff on, the, on this episode. And uh, some of the shows that Randy's been involved with or has worked on include, just to name a few, uh, A Most Violent Year. Uh, he uh, produced a movie called The Calling with Susan Sarandon, uh, worked as production legal on All is Lost, uh, executive producer of Kill Your Darlings. Uh, he is coming out with a movie later this year uh, as a producer called Big Sky uh, and has also worked uh, on uh, Spotlight, the new Thomas McCarthy movie. So he's worked you know, on a, a lot of films and brings a lot of expertise to the table on this uh, on this episode. So uh, I'm really happy that he was able to give us some of his time today. So Randy, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, if you want to reach out to us, you can do so at Craft Truck on Twitter, or you can drop us a line, coffee at crafttruck.com. Tell us what you think. If you feel so inclined, uh, please uh, drop us a, a few reviews or a few stars and a review uh, on iTunes. That's always appreciated, and uh, uh, it would be awesome if you did that. So uh, please do. Uh, without further ado, here we go, episode number 54 with Mr. Randy Manis. I don't know. How long have I known you for now? Like, it's been, I think, I, I don't know if I feel like I first met you. It was either at a coffee shop or at an airport. Uh, it was one of the two. Yeah, I feel like we saw each other at an airport, maybe on the way to Sundance when we had margin call there. But I feel like I had a meeting with Jeff at some point before that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I, I, it's been a while. It's been a while. So, like, I just want to thank you for, for, for coming on the show. The, the thing is, I'm actually not quite sure how to think about you, which is a weird thing to say. I mean, how do you think about yourself in the market? Do you think of yourself as, as a lawyer, as a producer? I mean, you've, you've been credited as, uh, you know, as production legal on a lot of shows. You've also been credited as an executive producer on, you know, for example, Kill Your Darlings, which is a wonderful movie. So, uh, how do you think about yourself in the marketplace? Well, I sort of think of myself as somebody who does, you know, I, I think I occupy a bit of a unique place in the marketplace because I've done a lot of different things. So, you know, I started off, you know, I'm a lawyer by training, but I started off in distribution. I was one of the original employees of Lionsgate and I was, you know, one of the founders of Think Film. So I worked for most of my career in distribution and while there did acquisitions and business affairs, so sort of did the legal side, but also very much the creative film side. Um, and then since Think Film ended, I've been doing, you know, I consider myself a producer, but I'm also consulting for a lot of financiers, other producers, distributors, and I come on to some of their movies in executive producer capacity. Um, and then, you know, recently I've started up my own distribution company in Canada. So I feel like I'm working on a lot of movies in a lot of different capacities, which gives me, you know, kind of really interesting access to 
the business in a lot of different ways. I'm coming at it a lot of different ways. So I don't know really how I would classify myself one way or the other. If somebody asks me what I do, I say I'm a producer, even though I'll do production legal on somebody else's movie or diligence and investment for a financier. Um, and I represent a lot of distributors and producers in some kind of business affairs capacity. Right, right. So like when, as a producer though, and I, I just want to just unpack that for, for just a minute. Do you ever... Um, and I don't know whether this, this is a delineating line, but as a producer, you don't go out there and develop an option properties by yourself. You would consider, uh, unless I'm wrong, but I would, I think. You yeah, probably... no, I have actually. A oh, few okay. times. Yeah. I've done it and it's something that we're doing more often. So in the last, you know, three years I've produced, I guess in the last two years have produced two movies, um, from the ground up. So one of them was a movie called Big Sky. Um, that we did with Bella Thorne and Kira Sedgwick last year in Albuquerque. And we made a movie in Hamilton called The Calling with Susan Sarandon, Donald Sutherland, and Topher Grace. Um, so those movies were, you know, in-house productions um, for which I'm credited as a producer. And we've got a few other things now in development. We're hoping to get another movie up and running in the fall. So because of the interesting kind of space that, that you do occupy, um, and, and just to be clear, you work North American-wide. So even though you're based in Toronto, you, you work on many U.S. productions, some of which, I mean, I'll just name a couple of them. For example, you worked on A Most Violent Year, you worked on Spotlight, you worked on All Is Lost, you've, again, produced a, a number of these movies here. So you're, you're, you're North American-based uh, in terms of the presence that you occupy in the marketplace. And given that you're coming from this distribution background and you're spending a lot of time counseling and working with producers on that sort of consulting basis, as you've mentioned, what are you seeing right now in the market? What is it that, that, that like, what, what's your feeling about the distribution landscape and the kind of deals that you're putting together for and on behalf of productions? Well, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot in there. I guess, you know, having just come back from Sundance, I'm very focused on sort of, you know, what the marketplace looked like there. And, you know, what, what I saw was that there's a lot of distributors and the field is very competitive. So for a certain kind of movie, and that can be a star driven movie or a really good movie. Um, you know, there's a lot of distributors paying a lot of money. Um, there's also obviously a lot of, you know, really interesting and novel distribution platforms available. So between Amazon's and now Vimeo and obviously what Netflix is doing and all of the sort of multi-platform releasing that's going on, there's a lot of different options as to how to get your movie out there. What has become clear is like the biggest challenge, I think, for a certain kind of smaller movie, the foreign sales aspect of it isn't there in the way that it used to be. So you know, from a from the perspective of financing and putting together your film and then ultimately recouping for your investors, I think that's where the biggest challenge is. On the domestic side, you know, you've got, uh, I think, a lot more options maybe than you did a few years ago. So let me actually unpack two points that, because I, I guess I asked you a fairly loaded and large question, but I think we've actually opened up a really interesting door in terms of things that, that we can talk about there. The first is Sundance. I was reading the trades and I was looking at the numbers that was being tossed out there. There are a lot of new entrants in the distribution landscape. And my personal feeling was, and I'm wondering what you feel about this, was that people were overpaying for movies this year at Sundance. Um, at least that was my opinion. I saw multi-million dollar deals, you know, many, many of them mostly. And what it looked like was that these newer entrants in the distribution platform were trying to make a big splash and then thus probably overpaid. Um, but that 
in and of itself might be good for the marketplace. I mean, did you get any of that coming out of Sundance or did it just feel vibrant and robust? And I mean, I've always felt that at Sundance since I've been going that, you know, if you're a filmmaker, you want to have your film at Sundance because people pay more money for movies there than they would if they appeared anywhere else. Um, and definitely this year there were movies that, you know, I was really surprised at the prices. And if you look back, it was really interesting. Deadline posted an article leading into the festival of sort of the box office grosses of all of Sundance's movies last year. And you take probably something like Boyhood out of the picture. Um, you know, most of the movies don't gross that much. Obviously, that doesn't tell the whole picture because there's a lot of other platforms where distributors are making money. And sometimes the box office might be a fairly small chunk of that. Um, but, you know, you got to imagine that, you know, the likelihood is most of the movies from this year are going to gross, you know, not much more than those movies did. So can we really justify these prices? Um, and I think in some cases you're right that there are some distributors who are new on the scene and they're definitely trying to plant their flag. And in some cases to be taken seriously, you have to overpay a little bit at the beginning. Um, but, you know, there's no doubt that some of these deals are going to come back to bite these distributors. They, just, they can't necessarily make economic sense. Yeah. You know, that's, and, as, yeah. And, and having been there, you know, in a bit of a distribution capacity there myself, you know, I felt like, you know, one had to be very cautious um, in making those decisions because you can really get swept up in the hoopla there. Something about the mountain air. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it was, uh, I don't know who, who said this to me, but, uh, I think they said, you know, the, the best way to buy a movie at Sundance is just not to be at Sundance. Yeah. yeah. I think that makes sense actually. You know, it's, uh, at any festival, you're always, you could always be a little bit fooled by being in a screening, you know, with an audience at a festival. I always say, if you're at the Toronto film festival, you know, the the city is so happy to have the festival here and it's such a big event that if you're at a public screening, the audience loves everything. And so you can really feel like, wow, people really love this movie, but you take it out of there and it's not the same reaction. So you really have to just, you know, believe in your own instinct. And, you know, what I find is that your initial instinct when you walk out of the theater is usually right, not what, you know, you think about after, you know, you've heard a bunch of reviews and you've, you know, talked to people on the shuttle bus and, you know, you, you start to talk yourself into something. Your initial reaction is usually the right one. Do, do you feel that now it's, it's, it's actually harder to construct a deal uh, with all these, the, these platforms? Or, I mean, can you actually parse out when you're working with a producer or it's on behalf of one of your own films to actually structure a deal if you're trying to deal with, okay, there's SVOD platforms there, you know, and many of them now, and there's all the, you know, uh, you know, DVD plays, whatever that may be, but there's still some market left. There's all rights deals. There's just try trying to figure out how to make a deal has kind of become a weird thing. Uh, it, like, where do you start in terms of thinking about, okay, what kind of a distribution model is going to work best for this film? And when you, and when you go to kind of, put something together. How do you think about it? I mean, you definitely have a lot more options, but it's definitely, I agree with you, much more complicated because if you are parsing out rights, figuring out the windowing and the exclusivity, because one platform will be exclusive against some other platforms, but not against others. Um, and so, 
it is very complicated. I think going into a festival, you know, if you have a strong film, you'd like it to be something where you can do an all right deal. I mean, I think everybody's dream is still to get, you know, the big money, you know, big purchase price, big P&A commitment for your movie, and they're taking it out theatrically in a big way, and they're taking all rights, and in one fell swoop, you've got, you know, a company with real deep pockets and leverage in the marketplace handling your movie, and it's transformative. Um, But for a lot of movies, you have to be, by necessity, to maximize, you know, your return and the exposure for your film, you have to be, by necessity, looking at parsing out those rights, and that's, you know, I think part of the function going in is trying to think realistically in an unbiased way about what kind of movie you actually have. And when you get there, you might find out that, you know, the market is responding better or worse than what you thought and you adjust your plans. But, um, you know, I think you really have to be thinking about how you might um, maximize by doing, you know, various deals and piecing them together. And it's complicated. So there's, uh, that's why there's good sales agents who do that a lot, who, you know, know how to put those deals together. Uh, do, do you feel that there's transparency yet at all in uh, the electronic sell-through market? And by that, I would mean any, any of the Amazons or iTunes or... Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, if you have, you don't have a lot of real information. Most of the information that you have, obviously, is anecdotal. And my theory is that you mostly only hear about the successes. So, you know, if people have particularly good results digitally, then they're touting them in the trades, you know, and it's still very exceptional for people to tout any result, but you're not hearing about anything where it doesn't really work. So um, there's a possibility there's sort of a bit of a pitfall that you might rely on, you know, having heard all these results, all of which were really positive, and that's why it's helpful to be represented by a sales agent who might have a lot more real information because they're seeing reports from a bunch of distributors and at least are able to develop some greater sense of the marketplace that might be reliable. If I'm a producer, I'm putting together a package and I've got some equity involved. Where should I start thinking about that? Where should I start? Like, okay, what, what kind of models are you seeing that are working in terms of structurally how to put a film together that makes economic sense these days? Right. Well, I mean, these are, I mean, there's a lot there and those are hard questions. I think, you know, the starting point has to be, you know, what can the market bear for this movie? I think the production budgets of movies have come down significantly in the past few years for, indie movies because I think people used to make movies for $10 million that they now make for two Um, because that's the only model that makes sense. And sometimes that works out really well and doesn't mean you won't still lose money on that movie. um, Sadly. Um, But it's, it's very much about sort of backing into, well, okay, this is really what we can make this movie for. I've been involved with a project where it was brought to us and, you know, somebody said, we're going to make this movie for five and a half for $6 million. And we made it for four because that was basically what the market could bear. Um, And, you know, that kind of worked out well. It would have been really a disaster if we made it for five and a half or six. So I think that's the first thing. There are a lot of tools out there now, which, you know, obviously to the extent you can access soft money and stuff, but I think something like Kickstarter, um, which I haven't used in any of my projects personally, but I'm sort of intrigued by it because, you know, you're essentially getting, you know, from the, from a financing perspective, a grant. 
Um, you know, and I was really intrigued by what happened on Zach Braff's movie. I think wish you were here. Is it called? Yep. Um, because you know, they made that movie for five or $6 million and they raised two and a half or $3 million off Kickstarter. So, you know, when the financier comes in to finance that movie, um, you know, assuming that the people who invested in that Kickstarter campaign are happy with what they did and are coming back to keep on doing stuff like that. Um, you know, they're getting a $6 million movie for $3 million. And you take into account the tax credit and, you know, foreign sales, you're sort of got a very advantageous situation. So, you know, a model like that is, you know, I think something that's really interesting. It's, it's the same way it's, it becomes similar to, you know, soft monies available, you know, from, you know, like we have in Canada with Telephone Canada or something like that. Um, so that's something that's not really, there's never really been anything akin to that in the U.S. because they don't have those sort of government financing schemes. Um, you know, so that's one way to look at it. I think it's really very much about um, finding, looking at things that give your movie what I call sort of salvage value. So in the event the movie doesn't work out as well as you hope, either creatively or commercially, or the market doesn't respond to it in the way that you hoped, that you've got things that still make it commercial on some platform. So usually that's cast or genre um, or some kind of built-in audience, as you've said. You know, those those things, you want to look for one of those elements to guarantee investors that even if kind of this movie doesn't work on execution, as we kind of all hope, we've got marketable elements here that will still allow us to recoup our investment or at least a significant chunk. I, I think I'm going to call this podcast Salvage Value with Randy Manis. I love that. <laughs> Salvage Value. I love that. No, no, it's fantastic. I mean, just it's it's sort of like just in a weird way, you're just thinking, okay, if I really screw this up, how much can I make back for uh, for our investors or for our film? It's actually it's a really... <laughs> It it sounds doom and gloom, but it's not. It's actually really smart. I I really like that. It is not how you want to go into anything, but I try to take, you know, every movie that you get involved with, you think of what is the best day on this movie? What can this movie be if it's really executed well and everybody does their job well and, you know, we're smart about how we put it together and, you know, the cast, the director, and everybody performs well and we get lucky. You know, you sort of look at that, but you also have to think about, well, most films don't work out as well as you hope. So what will we end up with if it's not that kind of thing? And we don't want to end up with – that's why sometimes you make a movie, obviously look at the guys who went and made uh, Beast of the Southern Wild. You know, that doesn't have anything going. Where that movie doesn't work, you don't really have anything to sell. But, you know, these are really talented guys, and they executed, obviously, amazingly well. There's lots of examples of movies like that. But that's, you know, investors taking, you know, a much bigger bet on talent and material. Do, you know, so that's a, a different kind of financier, with, you know, who really, you know, gets the creative and buys into it and takes a chance. And I think that's hard to find. It, it's sort of just brings me to a, a kind of an, an interesting sort of point, which is, you know, like this, this podcast is called the, the business of film. We, we obviously talk about, you know, the business of film, but it, it kind of just draws out this really interesting idea, which is, okay, there is this, there is this business, like this actual business that just sort of exists like out there where, 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 where projects become quote unquote monetizable and you can put them together and, you know, maybe it's at a $5 million valuation and you've got some stars and it's got some, you know, some international market interest. And then you can layer on some soft monies and some gap and maybe a little bit of private equity. And all that kind of falls into, let's just call that, you know, like business model bucket A. But then you got a whole lot of, but then you got this other sort of 
bucket, which is in, in a weird way, maybe Beats of the Southern Wild or examples like that, which are really artist driven films that are just based to a large extent on angel money and, and passion. And I'm not sure, so sure they're the same thing. I, I, if you, if you get what I'm driving at, like there's, there, there, there's a business to this, but then there's this whole other side of it where there's just tons of filmmakers out there that are just like, Hey, I just want to go make a movie. Yeah. I mean, I often think, you know, we look at projects and my first question is always, what's the role here, you know, that's going to attract an actor because attracting the actor or actors, if it's an ensemble, you know, that's what triggers the foreign sales estimates and triggers the financing and sort of makes the whole thing real kind of thing. And sometimes we say, well, this is the kind of thing that we'd like to make with a discovery or there, you know, there is no reason why an actor with market value is necessarily going to do it, but we could find great actors and make the movie better. And it's always sort of, you know, at the financing stage, you often it's it's hugely helpful to have marketable actors, although if the movie doesn't turn out as well with those people as it would have with, you know, a lesser known actor who just had chops and really executed and was perfect for the part, at the selling stage, you're just better off with the good movie, you know, so it's a really fine balance. And, um, you know, the investors who are willing to back, you know, the totally artistic, creative approach over... You know, the more certain here are the foreign sales, here's the, you know, the backstop deal we can get because we have a certain level of cast. Those those investors are just harder to find, I think, you know, and, and, and usually necessitate a lower budget, which is fine. You know, you do things, I think, at whatever budget makes sense. But, um, you know, as a producer, obviously working at a lower budget presents a lot of other challenges. Do you find that I mean, when you when you're when you're producing a project and you and you bring a project out to market, um, what what is the reaction? What are you hearing right now from that international community of of you know uh, in that typical model? The model being okay, I've, I've got a, a package and I'm bringing it out to the international marketplace. I want to make some pre-sales get some gap or get some, you know, a bank to finance those pre-sales. What's the market like right now? What are you, what are you seeing out there? I think that the, the foreign territories are not that interested in smaller American or Canadian independent movies. So because there's so much product now being done outside of the studio, you're going to, you know, an AFM or can to the market against a lot of big projects that have, you know, really major stars in them that are being produced and sold at these markets. So it's very hard, you know, I feel like, you know, it's very difficult for investors to rely on foreign sales numbers for small indie movies because ultimately it becomes about the execution of those movies. Can you define um, small? Like what, what does small mean in that sense to you? I guess I'm calling it like, you know, under 10, maybe it's under five, but I guess under $10 million. Um, you know, we're mostly trafficking in movies that are sort of, you know, five and six and under. And, you know, I feel like, you know, you need to have, you know, in order to really have foreign sales numbers you can rely on, you need cast and genre that appeal to foreign territories. But even then, 
Um, you'll make some pre-sales, but it's still, I think, very execution dependent and, and also dependent on what's happening in the U.S. So um, it is a bit of a roll of the dice. So you need to have you know, really strong material that you can look at investors in the eye and really believe that you're making something that is going to be great. And, well, you know, I've worked on lots of movies and some of them are great and some of them are not as great. But, um, you know, we're really focusing now, not only because of the investment, but also because of how hard it is to produce a movie and all the challenges on stuff that we think, you know, we don't really want to work on anything unless we think this really is going to be great. And we'll be wrong sometimes, of course, but, you know, I think the goal now is this has to be a great movie. That's what it has to be, I think, to succeed. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, and it's probably the, the best answer <laughs> that you can probably give to that question. Um, because you're right, at the end of the day, the movie's either good and it's going to sell or it's not good and it's not going to sell. So, uh, Yeah, that's what it comes down to now, I think. Uh, well, just because there's so much content. It's just there's just yeah. too much choice. Yeah. Let, I, I need to ask you to tell an airport story on air if you feel comfortable. Uh, the airport story is what was it like juggling basically all of Hollywood and their billing on margin call? Well, that was um, that was an interesting experience. First of all, it was my first time. I've now done production legal on a bunch of movies, but that was, I think, the first time that I did it. So I was definitely it was baptism by fire. I didn't necessarily have a ton. I had no experience um, in in navigating that. And what happened there in that movie is that um, the producers did such a great job of attaching cast that, you know, we would sort of, we started off at the plan, you know, this is how everybody's going to be billed. I don't remember specifically whether it was alphabetically or we kind of had a strategic plan. Um, and then we sort of stepped out of it a little bit because you get one actor, you're trying to get your film to be real by putting one actor in the movie, which will then help attract other cast. Margin calls a real ensemble piece. So once you sort of step out of your rules to attach that one actor, what kept happening on margin call was they kept attaching more and better cast. Um, it was sort of the only situation. Most times when you're when you first hear about a movie, they say oh, we're going to get you know X, Y, and Z actors, and they sound great, and then we end up settling for actors that are lesser than that. In this case, the cast and the actors just kept getting better and better. But we'd now given away a bunch of credits, and so it was a real juggling act to satisfy all of the various talent reps um, for a bunch of actors who weren't really getting paid anywhere near their rate and were doing kind of this labor of love, which makes issues like credit much more contentious and important. Um, so, you know, that was a situation where people would, we were spending a lot of time trying to figure out order of credits and who got ands and widths and people wanting, you know, second end credits and second with credits, which we couldn't, it was starting to become crazy. And then getting to the conversation about likenesses, we ended up with a beautiful poster for Margin Call, but has many faces and many names, everybody above the title, which was sort of at the end of the day, it's just like, let's just give everybody what they want and let's make a great movie kind of thing. Um, <laughs> but it was a, uh, you know, it was a lot of time and a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, 
complication in getting that one done. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Good learning experience. Uh, do, from from that experience and on to, I guess, future experiences, when, when you're working with, with trying to make deals with talent and you're, especially on projects where you can't necessarily spend massive amounts of money to meet, I don't, I don't want to say massive, when you, when you can't meet an actress quote, let's just say that. Um, what kind of deals, what should producers be thinking about in terms of you know, uh, back end or participations or the way they can think about how they can entice making a deal to, to, to make it more attractive to an actor if they don't have all the money necessary to meet their quote. Right. Well, I think the first thing is there has to be a reason for the actor to do this movie for less money. So they have to be following a director's vision or it has to be something that they don't get paid by the studio to do. So sometimes we try to do like an action movie and try to bring people in to do like a low budget indie action movie and actors will feel like, why do I have to, if I do this movie for a studio, I get paid millions of dollars. I'm not going to come do some action movie. So it has to be a role, first of all, that, you know, pulls somebody into it and makes them want to do it. The second thing I think you need to do is if you have a few actors and you need to try to get your deal resolved with one, the most, the biggest name usually done because that helps you get everybody else's deal done. Um, you know, if one person has accepted these terms, then really nobody else is going to have a leg to stand on in the same way in negotiating that. Um, and then it really ends up being about, you know, and this is sometimes where the complication comes in with financiers, but it ends up being about, you know, bells and whistles in terms of recoupment. And um, this might take the shape of bonuses or deferment pools and, you know, typically back end. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's sort of, you know, these things also can really spiral out of control where you have an ensemble of five actors and distributors ultimately won't want to assume bonuses for five actors and, you know, award bonuses and it, it can become unwieldy. So will distributors, you know, really, uh, sorry, will, will distributors actually, in your experience, take on? Because, yeah, that, that, that is a standard thing. You know, if you get an award, then you'll, you'll give an award bonus of, you know, some tens of thousands of dollars, for example. Or if, it's, uh, if, if it gets a first-run cable play, you get a different bonus. Or, you know, you meet a certain theatrical gross, you get a different bonus. Putting that all together, for example... Like, are you seeing distributors actually assuming that liability that, of the deals that the producers have made? Is that something that... Typically or... they do. Yeah. The, the issues are, I think there's two issues with that. One is sometimes, you know, it can imp impact other aspects of your deal in terms of, you know, possibly the price they pay, but even more likely, um, you know, it affects your ability to get overages from them beyond the minimum guarantee because they're paying these bonuses, um, you know, which they're recouping ahead of paying you out anything. But the bigger issue is typically, I find if you have a finished film and these things are in place, then distributors typically will assume them. Um, but you have sometimes a bigger issue with financiers who don't necessarily want them to be in place because they think it will ultimately impact their economics down the road. Um, you know, and they don't know what their distribution deal is going to be in place. And if you're doing a film where the U.S. distributor is involved from the get-go, then they certainly will have an opinion on it and may not want to assume it. So it's much easier to do if you're sort of totally indie movie and you're on your own and you have a financier who's on board with, you know, paying as little 
upfront now and dealing with it on performance based measures. Um, but you know, there it's, there's still a lot of complications to work out in terms of, um, you know, financiers generally on that front. That's where I find that that gets more difficult than it actually does with the distributors. Right. I mean, can you, I'm wondering if, if you can take us sort of behind the scenes on a negotiation. Is there a movie that you've done in the past that you're actually able to talk about where, and I'm specifically thinking about, because you always hear in the trades, uh, you know, such and such movie in, you know, a late night negotiating phase where there's multiple bidders and, uh, you know, it's, it's five o'clock and in in, in, it's five a.m. at Sundance or one of these festivals, and they made the deal. Uh, can you take us behind the scenes on any movie that you can think of where you're actually free to disclose? You know what goes on behind the scenes, like what, what, because they never talk about that in any of these articles. It's always it, it's always in a late night bidding war at five a.m. The deal was signed with relativity, you know, or what, whatever it is. But there is never any discussion of what goes on in that room. What goes on right. in the room? Well, where I've been involved with that has been more usually at the stage, you know, whether I've been a distributor, you know, kind of trying to close that deal, or whether I've been acting on behalf of, you know, a film I've exec produced or, you know, as a business affairs in a business affairs capacity. I've usually been involved in that once, you know, it's sort of the deal isn't done, but not where there's three different distributors, you know, in various rooms and they're playing, being played off against each other. Um, it's sort of, you know, I've been involved in that late night negotiation, but it's been, okay, we've sort of, you know, we're trying to close a deal here and we're not going to leave here until we do because in the morning there's another screening and a bunch of other distributors are, you know, sending their bosses to go see it. So, you know, if we don't close the next few hours, the sales agent would rather leave it open and see what happens in the morning. So, you know, in the experiences I've had, it's just been, you know, about, you know, negotiating major business points to arrive at a deal. Um, I fortunately and unfortunately have not had the, you know, I guess as a, as a buyer, fortunately not, but as a, as a seller, unfortunately, I haven't had the situation where I've been there where there's been, you know, three, uh, three different distributors bidding each other up over the course of the evening. I'd like to report that to you in my next podcast I do with you a year from now. I'm going to hold you to that, Randy. <laughs> and I will tell you everything. Perfect. I, I want I want detailed notes. I, I also want you to, to put the microphone on and leave it in leave it in the room, and we'll uh, we'll we'll play that audio. I think that that's actually what I should do. I should I, I should sneak into one of these rooms and just leave a microphone there and do that. Exactly. Uh, I just need to have the right film. Right. But you know, there were films at Sundance this year. These were slightly, you know, kind of inspiring in that way. From as a producer, you know, I wear a lot of hats. So I sometimes, as a distributor, I feel like, oh my God, these prices are going to kill some companies, and you know, people are going to lose their shirts, and it makes it very hard to compete. But as a producer who's developing a bunch of things, I feel like well, I see movies. Like there was a movie at Sundance called Dope, or another movie called Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Really good movies, but you know, there's nobody in these movies you know, that has any real market cachet or anything. They're just really good movies where um, there were a lot of offers and, you know, prices and in, in some ways, even more importantly, huge P&A commitments were made for these movies. And that's kind of really inspiring to, on a lot of the stuff we're looking at, it's like, why can't, you know, I think that's every producer's goal. One day you want to be one of those movies. Well, you know, it's funny you should say that because, and 
I feel like the pendulum has been going back and forth on this particular point, which is for a certain while people were moving towards, okay, we don't really need theatrical distribution because we've got all these other means of distribution or that, you know, uh, or that all these other, and I'm talking all those other except for theatrical means of distribution are going to kind of overtake it. But on the other hand, what I'm kind of seeing and feeling now from a lot of these conversations that we're having is you actually have to have the theatrical distribution. Like the theatrical, having a theatrical play is now more important than ever, which means making those deals with the distributor or working with any kind of a platform that will get you into theater, that will get you that publicity that you can only get from theatrical distribution is the only thing that's going to make you stand out in the marketplace and give you international value. What, I mean, do you, what's your sense about that? I mean, I think if you look at any of the, you know, examples that get often cited, you know, as being like the great performers on VOD, whether it's margin call or arbitrage or bachelorette or Snowpiercer, they're all things that were heavily promoted theatrically and had some level of success theatrically. I'm not sure if bachelorette had theatrical success or not. I can't remember, but the other ones all did. Um, but it had publicity. You know, those, yeah, huge publicity. Yeah. And these yeah. things performed, you know, the, the benefit of these things, they performed on all platforms. The question is, could they have performed even more theatrically if they weren't available on the other platforms? But, you know, keeping in mind that the spend for those platforms is, you know, much, much lower. So from a net result, the distributors and hopefully participants are doing much better. Um, but it's, uh, you know, though that's where I'm, I'm sure there are real examples of films that have worked well, um, on VOD platforms that have not had real theatrical success or much exposure or much of a spend either. But, um, I still think that the best way to create awareness for your movie on the other platforms is with the theatrical release. And it's still, you know, I mean, the IndieWire did this survey about this yesterday, interestingly enough, which kind of had, they just asked a lot of filmmakers, does the theatrical release still matter to you? And almost universally, the answer was, look, I recognize the value of all these other things, and I want my film to be on all these other things, and economically, I get it, but obviously, I still, I grew up watching movies in theaters, and I still want my movie to be there, and it legitimizes it, and it helps all those other platforms, and you know, I still think that's what everybody wants, and that's not only an emotional thing, but an economic thing. Not to mention that, you know, to get certain price points on VOD, you need to have a certain size theatrical release, and you want to be, um, you have the status of being an in-theaters movie on various digital platforms, so, you know, you're, it's really, it's otherwise so hard to cut through the clutter of the, the uh, like, crazy amount of content that's available right now, you know, even being in theaters still puts you in a pack of a lot of movies, but at least separates you out from just, you know, sort of what's akin to like the direct video bin. And just on that thought, do you or can you negotiate a limit on P&A when you're doing the, the, these deals? Because if you're going to go theatrical and you're going to say, OK, that's important to me as a producer, Unless you kind of stipulate, okay, this is what the P&A is going to be, that I think is where a lot of producers will end up getting in trouble. Because the minute you do go theatrical on a distribution deal, that's almost the kiss of death in terms of return on investment. Because you may not ever see another dollar. 
Right. Well, I'll say I'll say a few things. You know, first, it's I mean, certainly I've seen deals where people have capped the P and A and said, well, you can't spend more than X without coming back to us for our approval. I'll say that I don't think that you know producers typically will say no when asked for approval because everybody deep inside wants their movie to play theatrically as wide as possible and for as long as they can. Um, so. You know, that's that's a hard thing to say no to if the distributor is saying, we want to make your movie even bigger theatrically, people don't say no. Um, you know, but, you know, certainly I've seen, you know, in a case like our movie, The Calling, that was released by, you know, uh, well, Vertical Entertainment handled the theatrical in the States, and Sony had a lot of the other rights. Um, you know, they did a very small theatrical release, and, you know, it got us you know, some decent reviews and it gave us some awareness, but um, the film performed, you know, the spend was low and the film performed exceedingly well on VOD platforms. Um, and, you know, it's early days, but, you know, I'm certainly expecting as a back-end participant to see some money down the line, um, I'm hoping. Um, and I think that they did they did a very smart release and the theatrical release, you know, just helped. And it wasn't one of those situations, which might be typical, as you say, where the theatrical release, you know, sort of kills your ability to see overages. I think we'll probably see overages in that case. I think that they're figuring out kind of how much you need to spend to get the level of awareness you need. And as people experiment with it, that sort of will become a little bit more refined. Just because I, I, I want to be uh, sensitive to the time that we have with you. Uh, just a couple more questions, if I may, before we wrap up. Sure. Uh, are, are you, uh, just uh, out of curiosity, you've been in this business now a long time. It is, is I mean, we all have. Hey, been in the business a long time. Which is a good thing. <laughs> We're sticking around. We're survivors. Yeah, exactly. Um, is it now, do you, do you enjoy the business now more than you did, say, you know, 10, 10 years ago? Is this is this a more exciting time for you? Well, for me, it's a different kind. I'm doing very different things than I was doing. You know, for a long time, between Lionsgate and Think Film, I was, you know, we were running a distribution company. So we were growing a business sort of brick by brick. And, you know, I was, I had, you know, as the company got bigger, you end up having, you know, more defined responsibilities. And I think that, a lot of things were easier in those days. I think everything's much harder now. Um, but I'm sort of personally more excited because I branched out to doing a lot of different things. I really like working on the production side of things. I'm sort of excited about this new Canadian distribution company we're running. We picked up, you know, we're picking up movies and it's, uh, you know, so for me personally, I'm motivated and excited. I've got some very exciting uh, consulting clients and producers that I'm working with. But, you know, I think generally from a business perspective, this is a, you know, it's an exciting time because of all the new platforms, but it's, it's a challenging time with lots of pitfalls. And, you know, it's, I think it's very hard in a lot of respects. Randy, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, do you do any Twittering or how can somebody get in touch with you if they wanted to reach out? Um, I am not a big tweeter. Um, so, uh, I guess the best way is probably just, uh, you know, I guess on IMDB, we have a, an info account to, uh, to our company, uh, which we always look at and, uh, you know, happy to talk to anyone that's, that's looking to talk about anything. Thanks, Randy. I appreciate it.